Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 46, Cross God, is the fourth of our five-part Lent series on what it means if Jesus' death is the centre of Christianity. The next party to consider in the drama of Jesus' death is God. If you believe that Jesus is the divine second person of the Trinity, then we're talking about the God who is Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who is a person with his own will and outlook distinct from that of Jesus, intimately related to Jesus, but a different being in his own right with his own mind and purpose. I mean the God who in traditional Christianity is the first person of the Trinity, the God above and behind Jesus. God is often brought into human disaster by those who come after and struggle to cope with the horror of what's happened. People talk a lot about God, not only in natural disasters such as an earthquake, but in man-made disasters such as war, terrorism and murder. Even lightly religious people will express a hope that God will bring some good out of what seems like a wholly bleak situation with no visible redeeming good about it. Bereaved victims who've lost loved ones will often say they hope that God will bring some good from experience containing no obvious goodness. God is often used to express a sense of mystery and puzzlement with tragedy. When an experience is just too dark, To talk about rationally, sufferers will often talk about the mystery of God. Suppose it's a sense that although we're well aware something has happened which we struggle to understand, we hope that somewhere someone can understand this. Traditional and religious societies have gone further than this in suggesting a more deterministic view of suffering. Everything that happens is a fulfilment of the mind of God. Each and every human tragedy is, in some sense, the will of God. This determinism is still common in many parts of the world, but not in Europe since the Enlightenment. We've got little time for this approach. Rarely do you hear modern clergy trying to say something about the mind, purpose or will of God in the face of disaster. It would not be well received. Christianity has gone much further than any of this. The Christian explanation of Jesus' death has been not merely that God will bring some good out of it, in some vague and mysterious sense, but Jesus' death was the divine plan for this world. The Church has said that Jesus' crucifixion was God's plan. The Jewish and Roman leaders conspiring against Jesus were merely pawns in a bigger game. The bigger story is that the cross was God's big idea. Oh dear. Sending Jesus to his death was not something God thought of at the last minute on Good Friday. This event is the centre of Christian history, the long history of God dealing with this world. Before the coming of Jesus, all led up to this point. The Old Testament tells the story of how the ground was laid. A nation was chosen, a law was given, a means of sacrifice in an animal was tolerated. 
but the failed experiment of monarchy is pointing to the true king. The unkept law is pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit ushered in by Jesus, and the tedious repetition of animal slaughter in the temple is preparing God's people for the one true propitiation, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world in Jesus' death. The cross is God's very big idea. It permeates everything in this religion. It's not an accidental feature of God's economy. It is deliberate and purposeful. It's not just a man-made mess requiring God to mop up, no. It's God's own initiative. Jesus' death is God's most important intervention in the course of history. It is very much something God does. The cross reflects his mind. This is what God wanted. The cross reveals God's glory. The idea that Jesus' mission was to die and that this life purpose was given to him by God is not really spelt out in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to repeat the history lesson that we had on the 3rd of March, but you remember there's not a lot about this in the New Testament, and the creeds are pretty light about the meaning of Jesus' death. The notion that Jesus' death was God's big idea comes towards the end of the first millennium. As the church focused more on the death of Jesus, they started to search for explanation in the mind of God. The little fragments of New Testament material were worked up into big schemes of divine purpose. The assertion was made that Jesus dying was the action of God. And then, not, to con not content to tell us what God did in 30 AD Jerusalem, they went on to tell us why. And so the period of 800 to 1500 sees the church not merely obsess about the grisly historical reality of Jesus' death, but the mind of God expressed through this. Just as scientists in a slightly later era saw their task as uncovering the genius of God's design in the natural world, many medieval theologians thought their vocation was to describe God's genius in designing the salvation of the world through Jesus' death. This was the era of aggressive atonement theology. Many of the church's finest brains brought forward elaborate schemes explaining how it all works. One of the most important was Anselm, Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. 21st century holders of this office are focused on trying to steer the organisation through the church's culture wars without fracturing the fragile organisational unity. Anselm was much more ambitious. Not content with developing one of the most important arguments for God's existence, he set out a major development in church thinking about the meaning of Jesus' death. Jesus' sacrificial death had been seen as offering the devil payment for sinful man's freedom. No, said Anselm, there was a payment, but the payment is to God, to satisfy his majesty offended by man's sin. It's all about God's satisfaction. Now, let's have a little interlude. You probably think I'm going to sing the Rolling Stones songs, Satisfaction. 
I can get no. But no, not the Rolling Stones today, but their rivals, the Beatles. Not Mick Jagger, but John Lennon, sort of. I was in Liverpool, walking down Bold Street, browsing the independent shops, when I came across a strange sort of place. I'm not sure whether it was a New Age bookshop or a transcendental meditation centre or just a purveyor of dubious substances, if you know what I mean. The sign over the door said, John's Highs. So I went into John's Highs and saw a man with long, light brown hair parted in the centre, quite a long beard and little round glasses. And I asked him rather sheepishly, Are you John? And in a slightly Liverpudlian voice, I'm sure I've heard somewhere before, he replied, Yes, I'm John Lennon, John the Evangelist, whichever John you want. Wow! A Beatle and a Gospel writer? Now that's something. Well, I'm not just any old Beatle. I'm the Beatle. If you know any of that Paul McCartney's Beatles songs, they're very wooden and literal. Penny Lane, the barber serves an old the customer. So childish. Compare that to Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Or just look at my lyrics in Lucy in the Sky. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Yeah, I think I get it. You always look beyond the literal. How do you manage it? Whether I'm writing Beatles songs or the New Testament Gospel, I do find that certain substances can help. So when you portray Jesus as exalted on the cross and try to make us think of it not so much as an execution, as a coronation where Jesus is a king reigning on high with his father, what exactly were you on? Yoko, can you see Revel out now, please? He doesn't want to be high with us. He'll never get it. The psychedelics lost on him. He ought to stick with Paul McCartney's songs and Mark's gospel. Show him out. And pass me another wacky-backy. So back to the slightly exotic world of atonement theology, where Jesus' execution is all about God. It's God's plan, God's idea. It's about God's honour, God's satisfaction, God's glory. So for a few centuries, theologians were scratching around trying to explain all of this stuff with all sorts of schemes. Some of the analogies they used were legal, such as justification, some financial, such as redemption. A world that no longer practised animal sacrifice needed some sort of explanation as to how Jesus' death could have something to do with human sin. Martin Luther talked about Jesus dying as a substitute. John Calvin said, Jesus bore in his soul the tortures of a ruined and condemned man, moving the emphasis from Jesus' physical pain to the cosmic transaction between God and humankind. The theological industry of atonement did not end with the Middle Ages. There was a virulent mutation in 19th century Princeton, New Jersey, 
Atonement by penal substitution portrayed a particularly nasty God who is angry about sin and cannot accept any human solution to human rebellion. Punishing his own son in our place is God's wonderful plan and provision. For many evangelical Christians, this is much more than one atonement theory. It is the Christian gospel. It's God's biggest and best idea. Evangelicals love this theory, but not many of them realise how recent and modern an idea it is. For many thoughtful Christians, atonement represents our religion's biggest intellectual failure. We're unable to see how any of the schemes work, medieval or modern. We're reluctant to see God as an insecure sovereign who longs for satisfaction. We struggle with the thought that this might be a nasty Shylock character consumed by the need to get his pound of flesh, if that's what Jesus' death was. We marvel at the credulity of people in the ancient world in thinking that slaughtering an animal could do anything for their sins in God's sight. Substitution seems to abrogate the most basic principle of justice, that I'm responsible for the consequences of my own actions. Penal substitution is morally repulsive. The theories just do not work. They don't convince. The Church has invested a lot in its efforts to show how Jesus' death is God's big plan for the world. But it feels like an intellectual cul-de-sac. The big words and categories of the big beasts just seem obscure. The whole picture has been unrewarding both intellectually and spiritually. It's no surprise that the word theological is commonly used to describe arguments that seem wordy, arcane and unconvincing. I fear that atonement theology has contributed more to the degradation of religious language than to human enlightenment. Few Christians have got any patience with this branch of theology. People outside the church are often openly hostile to this big bad idea. If God were any good, couldn't he come up with a better scheme, one kinder to Jesus and fairer to humanity that doesn't work through cruelty? What sort of a father would abuse his son in this way? If God really loves us, why is he so obsessed with our sin? Why does he need a scheme? Why not just forgive us? God does not come out of atonement theology with much credit. He's a monster, a thin-skinned tyrant, an abusive father, not comfortable around normal people. You've got your work cut out trying to find how this God has got anything to do with love. If God really loves, then forget atonement. If you really want to stick with atonement, then you need to learn to worship a monster. Three effects of the church emphasising that Jesus' death was God's big idea to save the world. Number one, there's a widespread recoil from the God of Christianity. Even God's friends have an uneasy relationship with him. Given the paternalistic structure of divine human connection, God is often seen as a very difficult father figure. Modern Christians read, for instance, the Genesis story of Abraham nearly sacrificing his son Isaac and are bewildered 
with the character of a god who could ask the old man to slaughter his only son. For many centuries, pious Christians saw this terrifying passage as a type of Jesus' death, illustrating the costly love of God who, unlike Abraham, actually brought the knife down on his one and only son. 21st century Europeans are more likely to see this as a story of child abuse rather than global salvation. If God is a father, and that's the sort of father he is, then not many of us would want to get very close to him. Atonement theology has sullied the character of God. Many Christians have found that when you drill down beyond the holding mechanism of it's a mystery beyond human understanding, that what you find is that God is just not very nice. If you're relatively deferential and naturally pious, you might decide to be careful and make sure you're on the right side of this wrath. But you're unlikely to want to form a close personal relationship with him. Atonement theology was an important part of the intellectual life of the Middle Ages. In the modern world, it's left us with a God who many people would prefer to live as far away from as possible. I can't help wondering how much modern atheism comes from the desire to get rid of this monster. Since the church worked so hard from 800 to 1500 showing the nastiness of God, is it any great surprise that after 1500 many European intellectuals shrank back from God? Seems to me that quite a bit of contemporary atheism is characterised not by dispassionate philosophical talk about metaphysics, but by angry ranting against the mean monster God. And to be fair to them, they've got quite a bit to be angry about. Most of us will be familiar with Pascal's wager, the notion that a person has nothing to lose but everything to gain from believing in God. In a sense, the monster God who needs propitiating through Jesus' death alters this equation. God is not a benign and neutral figure whose existence may bring benefit, but whose non-existence means nothing. In traditional Christian religion, he's angry about sin and needs to punish. He killed his own son, and unless you join the club, he'll kill you too. Is it any surprise that many people want to knock this God off his perch. If Jesus' death was God's big bad idea, then we have a lot of reasons to resent God. Many prefer to put God behind us and move forward to a future without God. I think the notion that God slaughtered Jesus to save us from our sins is one of the causes. Second, Jesus' death as God's plan obscures the real historical reason why Jesus was executed. There was a very specific reason why the Jerusalem authorities killed Jesus. And this is an important part of his life story. He challenged their religion in general and their temple in particular. They wanted him silenced. When Christians speculate about the cosmic plan of God, they tend to overlook the more obvious drama in front of them. Jesus' death was not a random freak event. Yes, there was a cause. And so there is a sense in which we can legitimately ask the evangelist's favourite question, why did Jesus die? 
the third and final problem. Jesus' death as God's big idea means that no one can question Christianity's obsession with the cross. I want to say that the church's emphasis on Jesus' death between 800 and 1500 reflected the violent context of the period. I'm interested to see how this great religion can reinvent itself for a much more peaceful 21st century Europe. Traditional Christians are unwilling to contemplate shifting the emphasis away from Jesus' death because this is God's biggest and best idea. It's untouchable and it cannot be questioned. I would like traditional Christians to see how our religion looked before we started emphasising the crucifixion. I'd like them to remember the era before the atonement industry got going, i.e. the first thousand years or so of Christian history. I'd like them to acknowledge how little material there is in the New Testament about God doing this, that and everything else through Jesus' death. I recommend an honest audit of all the problems that come from the church endlessly banging on about God's supposed achievements through this awful event but the brick wall preventing many Christians from constructively rethinking the place of the cross in their religion is the unshakable belief it was God what done it. As we finish today, I want Jesus, the victim, to have the last word. Jesus did not see his execution as a place for very much talk about God. He articulated no sense of divine purpose or human benefit. But he did say one thing about God. In his cry of dereliction, he asked, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A question rather than a statement. It expresses his sense that God is defined in this event as an absence rather than a presence. I think it might be time now for the church to listen to Jesus rather than medieval theologians. Keep God out of it. Thank you for listening to episode 46. We've got one more week to go on this Lent series about Jesus' death as the most important thing about him next week, what does it mean for you and me?